extend my thanks for everybody who <clears throat> is really just jumping in the camp program. And uh, we want to make this year uh, the best year uh, for our kids. There's so much that is at stake with them. And I just really appreciate everybody in this church just jumping in the way you always do and, you know, and helping out every way that, that you can. Now, last week, we, we saw two of the greatest and I think the most incredible two verses in the Bible in dealing with the devil. And uh, again, I apologize for preaching on the devil on Mother's Day, but it was one of those things where I didn't orchestrate it that way. It's just the way it came up. Don't read anything into it. But, uh, you know, um, we learned last week some great stuff. And um, we talked about out of Proverbs chapter 16, verses 4 and 5, why the devil was created. And it opened up so many things for someone who really wants to study the Bible. And, and, and beyond that, just understand what's going on around us today. You know, we live in, as Christians, forget about the country, as Christians, as God's people, dealing with churches, religion, and all the things that are going on out there. We live in very confusing times. Uh, it's hard to find a church today that believes the Bible and preaches the Bible and teaches the Bible. And we saw last week how that, that the devil's main thrust, that when he wanted to deceive man, will be through religion, through bringing and changing what God said, and, and giving a form of godliness, as the Bible says, but denying the power thereof. And you got basically, if you're going to take the time to lay it out and go through it, you got probably a year's worth of material that, that will answer so many questions about God and the Bible. And honestly, just the reason why things are the way they are in life. I started out by showing you that the whole Bible and everything about God is built on God has three separate plans that he wants to invoke. He wants to bring about. And he's in the process of doing that. Everything on planet Earth, we get so dialed into our little world that we live in that we, we never step outside the box and really see the big picture of things. And I told you that God has a plan for the universe. And I went into great detail about it. I told you then that God uh, has a plan uh, for planet Earth. And I showed you that out of the book of Isaiah and talked about that. And then I showed you how that God has a plan for you. Each one of those plans is distinctly different, yet they're all connected. Each one deals with a its own identity, yet they all blend together. I showed you probably the greatest single concept uh, in the Bible for understanding God's plan and the foundation of understanding it is simply understanding the concept of free will, that God made you and me as a free moral agent to choose everything in life, to choose him or not to choose him. And we, we talked about that at, at great length. And then I talked about how that God did create the devil, that he allowed it to happen, showed you how that, why he let him come into the world, what God did after he came in. And I showed you for the great purpose of contrast, how that the darkness of this world will only contrast the detail of the light of God. Uh, you know, when you get, and we talked about this last week, when you get God's plan, when you begin to understand it, and I know that saying that, nobody is ever going to fully understand it. I certainly don't. But you get a, a glimpse of it. You begin to grasp the concept. 
when that comes in your life and you get to the point in your walk with God, three fundamental things change about you as far as your perspective is, is, is concerned. First thing that changes is all history changes. History now takes on a completely different focus. The fact that the devil had a throne one time, the fact that the city of God is Jerusalem and every conflict in the world, certainly the conflicts of today, goes back to Jerusalem. People scratch their head and wonder, what's going on in the world today? Why are we having so many problems in the Middle East? We never had the problems in the Middle East till the nation of Israel went back in 1948 and became a nation. That launched everything that you're seeing and understanding today that's going on in our current events. That was part of God's plan. It's all part of God's plan. But when you understand a little bit of it, history changes. You realize that all history revolves around the Jew in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel. You understand that it revolves around the New Testament Christianity in the New Testament. Why, in the book of Proverbs, we haven't got to it yet, but when we get to it, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time. There's two landmarks in the Bible that in a historical perspective, you never want to lose. Because a landmark is where you get your fix or your position of where you're going to go and understand a base from which you work from. Not only does all history change, but once you understand the, the plan of God, all science changes. True science is found only in the Bible. Outer space, the Bible. Geology, the Bible. Uh, anthropology, the Bible. Uh, you know, the dinosaurs, <laughs> the Bible. Uh, astronomy, atomic structure, mathematics, all of those things are laid out in the plan of God and seen so clearly once you understand it. And the third thing that changes the perspective when you get to God's plan is, is it changes you. Your life will never be the same again. The biggest problem we all have is that we live on planet Earth. And living on planet Earth, we get so caught up in everything that we do day after day after day. And we get so much influence from the world and literally no influence from God that our perspective gets skewered. It gets out of balance. We come to the point where we think that this life is all that there is for us. We actually get to the point where we think that, that there's nothing outside this. Or if it is, it doesn't really matter or compare with what I want to have right now. And of course, when you understand God's plan and you see how you fit into it, once you see how you fit into it, the world loses its luster. You'll never be the same. Your purpose, your direction, all of your things in your life now change and take a different direction. Hey, if I told you today, this morning, that what you're doing right now, if you're doing what God wants you to do and you're dialed in to what God has, has saved you for and you've given your life to, if I was to tell you this morning that what you're doing in ministry right now is nothing more than a model of what you're going to be doing out into eternity, you'd have a heart attack. But that's exactly what's happening. I told you last week, Ephesians 2, verse 6 and 7, that in the ages to come, he's going to show somebody his goodness and kindness, what he's doing with you right now. It's incredible. And God's people are indifferent to that. They could care less about that. Bless their hearts. They're going on their own way in life, totally oblivious to what's around them or the great plan that God has done and what he's doing. It's incredible. 
I told you last week that God's plan will destroy and tear apart all the heresies that you find and all the false doctrines and the false teachings. And I'll tell you again, I say it all the time, we live in a world where the devil wants to stop whatever God wants to do in your life. And oh, he'll always have his drinking crowd. He'll always have his carousing crowd. He'll always have that dimension of it because there's people that... that, But but I want to tell you something. That's not where he's focused. His focus is he's seated in the high places. His focus is religion. His focus is to take the clear, simple teachings of the Word of God and make them so hard and complex and, and, and so hard to grasp and understand that man will get lost into confusion. He'll play to man's old sin nature and he'll actually get man to believe that there's something good in you and me. We talk about, so many churches talk about the spark of good in man, that all you have to do is fan that spark and it goes into a flame of goodness. There is no spark of good in man. Bible says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. God doesn't come down and, and, and fan a spark. God lights a fire unto you the day you get saved and it burns by itself if you put the right kind of wood to it. That's the way God does it. And I told you last week, the, the, you know, uh, his, whole, his whole plan is to pull together other groups and cults and religions outside New Testament Bible Christianity. And the reason being that th- the plan of God, when you understand it, will expose them and absolutely destroy them because they cannot stand up against the test when you really understand God's plan. I, I showed you last week how, how ridiculously stupid the concept of Calvinism is. The fact that God would choose some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell. When you look at that in the light of God's plan, how foolish that looks begins. And I'm not against, I, I don't have an ax to grind about with any church or any religion. That's not my point. But I'm not going to stand up here and tell you, and I hope you're not so naive that you think that when the devil's main sphere is religion, he's not going to have a lot of false ones out there that's going to, one purpose, and that is to damn man's soul to hell. And they can't stand the test up to the, up to the, up to the plan of God. You take Mormonism. They teach the devil and Christ are brothers. They teach that the devil's going to be restored someday. They teach that we're all spiritually born on another planet someplace. And all of the good angels are producing spiritual children which somehow filtrate down into the good people here and all the bad angels have kids on a planet and they all filter down to all all the bad people here. And of course in the Mormon teaching, the good angels... They produce the good kids or the white folks. And the devil producing all the bad kids turn out being the black folks. Now, where is Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton when you need them? Ludicrous up against the plan of God. It's incredible what people put out, but it's even more incredible what people believe. Nobody likes Jehovah's Witnesses. 
Part of the reason is they don't believe there's a tribulation and a little return of Christ. They believe they're, they're, they're living in the tribulation right now. To them, Christ is not God. He's a created being. In spite of what I showed you last week in Isaiah chapter 45. They don't believe in a rapture. They don't, they, they don't believe in a millennium. They don't believe in, in any concept of the plan of God. Now you take unity, new age, and, and Scientology. They don't believe anything. They don't even believe that God and the devil are people. They believe they're just an influence, and you become your own God. The Protestant churches, all the churches that came out of the Reformation, of the Catholic Church with John Wesley and Zwigley and, and Calvin and those guys, and now they've all went back into the Catholic Church. They, no millennium, no time with Christ on this earth, no tribulation, no, no, uh, uh, no, no book of Daniel, no book of Revelation, no second coming of Christ. They're either all millennial or post-millennial. They have no concept of what God is doing. And when you understand what God is doing, they don't have a leg to stand on. Now, you take our own Baptist world. You got Baptist churches that are taking Baptist off their name left and right. They're moving into the evangelical movement, which has become the mainstream of Christianity, and most of them are honestly saved, where the other ones aren't. But their issue is a total, complete ignorance of the Word of God. And they've lost, they, they've got the concept of a church. They have a church, but they've lost the concept of the truth of the Word of God. And now they've been, what, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years without any light from the revelation of God. So you start to see them going nuts. Some of them believe in theistic evolution today. All of them have one thing in common. You know what it is? They all reject God's establishment of the nation of Israel. The number two concept of the Bible So when you lose sight of God's three plans, when you lose sight of what God is doing universally, and you lose God, sight of what God is doing locally, and then what God is doing with you and me within all that concept, hey, like it or not, understanding His plan is the key to understanding Him. And when you don't understand it, you don't see it, you don't recognize it, the devil's going to have a heyday with you, and that's exactly what he does with God's people. Now, today we're going to move on a little farther into chapter 16, and we're going to get into some really good practical truth. Last week was a lot of good doctrinal stuff with a lot of decent practical application, but today is going to be something that these verses are fit right down into where you and I live. And it really sets the theme, I think, of, of where you go in Christianity. There's a reason why all of God's people that get saved and claim to be saved, and I'm certainly not saying they're not, but there has to be a reason why some of them get to a place in their life where they really, really understand God, and some of them never get to that place. Some of them attain to a level where they really understand what God's doing, and it really does change their perspective. It changes how they look at life. It changes how they look at history. It changes how they look at everything. And then there are some of God's people who bless their heart. They just trot along. They never grow. They never go up that spiritual ladder of getting any kind of understanding about anything. 
there's a reason for that. And I want to show it to you today. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 6 and 7. By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. And by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. Footswalker, would you stand up and ask God blessing on a service this morning as we come to the Word of God? Thank you, Footsie. Now, the first part of the verse says, by mercy and truth is iniquity purged. God's mercy and His truth are for us the two greatest concepts in all the Bible for us as human beings. I mean, we can talk about the plan of God all we want. We can talk about all that God is going to do, all He has done, what He's doing right now, and what He's going to do in the future. But I want you to understand, if mercy and truth has not been infused into your life, if there hasn't been a time in your life when you accepted the truth of God, the mercy of God through the grace of God, then none of it makes any sense. And none of it's going to do a thing for you. I'm, there's a lot of exciting things in the Bible. I love studying history. I love studying the future. I love studying all the books of the Bible and see what God's doing. But I want you to know, if it hadn't hit my heart first and God hadn't changed me by His mercy and purging my iniquity, all of no avail. I always love in the Bible mercy and truth. I always love in the Bible when God uses two great concepts or two great words together to illustrate how that they are connected and how that they can't, you can't understand one without the other. How in life you can't separate the two and they have to work together in all that we do. And he talks about mercy and truth. You can't separate those. And there's some great examples in the Bible. John chapter 1, verse 17, it says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You see, there's one, grace and truth. You can't separate those two. And when you find those two or words like that, it's always been a blessing to me because it shows me how they're connected together. You see, truth is the Word of God. Truth is the Word of God. And when we talk about absolute truth, we're talking about the Bible. But it does you no good to have the Bible if you don't have grace in dealing with people to use the Bible. It's more than just having truth. It's the ability to understand that putting out truth takes grace. And you learn that, that you may have the truth, and it may be hard-line truth. And it may be truth that is absolute, and it may stand against all the errors of other religions. But you never get to the place where you do not have the grace to understand that people get into their world of false religions, and if it wasn't for God's grace of somebody coming into your world, into your life, and spending the time and showing you the truth, you might be right there in a pew with them this morning. Grace and truth. You find some churches that have grace. They love everybody, but they have no truth. Then you find some churches that have truth, but they have no grace. <clears throat> There's a couple of churches down in Florida talk about having truth but no grace. They believe the Bible is the Word of God. 
One of our, not one of our guys, but a friend of ours that comes to Thursday night Bible study went down there to visit sometime to preach down there. Was going down to one of the sermons, and his hair is—it's not long. It's a—it's—it's it's a little long, you know, not bad. I mean, just uh, and but down there, if it isn't—if it isn't a buzz cut, you know, you're you're an apostate. And he asked one of the guys. Now, they don't even know him. They don't know if he's saved, if he's lost. They had no idea that he was a saved man who really knows the Bible, who really loves God and loves the Word of God. And he comes on Thursday night. He doesn't come to church here yet, but he comes to Thursday night, and he's a great kid, and I've known him for years. And he asked one of the guys if they, where the restroom was, and the guy looked at him and said, well, we have two, a man or a woman. Which one would you like? Because his hair was too long, in his estimation. Now, there's a guy, and that church has got the truth. Oh, do they got the truth. But they got no grace. You can't get yourself into a little bubble, man, where you think everybody has to be just like you and wear their hair just like you and dress just like you. Why, if God waited till you looked like him, dressed like him, and cut your hair like him, we'd all be in hell this morning. You can have the truth, but you've got to have the grace to administer the truth. See, you can't separate those two words. I'll give you another one in John chapter 4, verse 24, the concept of worship. The Bible says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. There's another one. Worship, real biblical worship, depends on two things. Your spirit... And God's truth. I drive down the street all the time, and I, 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 you know, here again, I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just telling you, I want to know what's real. Now, maybe you don't. Maybe you're naive enough to think that everybody out there is a good person. We know that's not true. All I want is the truth. I want to know what is right. <clears throat> I drive down the road, and I see <clears throat> marquees on churches. <clears throat> 7 o'clock worship service. Sunday morning worship service. Pastor gets up and he says, okay, now we're going to worship God with our tithes and our offerings. Now, I'm not picking a fight with anybody, but I want to know what the Bible says about it. The Bible says real worship, listen to me, has nothing to do with any service we have. Real worship has nothing to do with the offering we took. If I thought it did, I'd take up several more. Worship doesn't have anything to do with anything that we physically do. Worship is in your spirit with the Word of God, and you ought to live in a state of worship 24 hours, 7 days a week. Regagating the worship of God to a certain... Then what do you do when you leave? Leave your worship there? After you take the offering up, is the worship done now? Worship is a state of being. Based on two words, you can't separate your spirit, God's truth. See, when you understand those things, things become clear. Now, I have one, I have a number of goals for you. <clears throat> I may not accomplish them all in your life, but as your pastor, I have a couple of goals for you. One of them is simply for you to understand what is real and what is not. I'm not asking you to change what isn't real to try to make it real. I'm not out to change what isn't real to make it real. 
because that would be impossible task, and that's not my job. But my job through the Word of God is to point out to you, my people, that you may learn to be into any situation, look at it, see it, and immediately know it's a good one or it's a bad one. That's invaluable. Do you know how many heartaches that would have solved in people's lives, God's people's lives, if they would have just had the ability to look at this or look at that and see this and see that and know if it's of God or if it's not. I can't tell you the problems that would solve. Now, I may never get there with you, but that's where I want to be. Fundamentally, no Bible truth, no worship. So we conjure up a false worship system that everybody just kind of falls into because they don't have the truth of God's word either. John chapter 14, verse 17. Here have another term, the spirit of truth. That simply says that real truth will always come through God's spirit. The definitive chapter on, on the spirit of God is John 16. Seven things in that chapter the Holy Spirit of God does for you. We find the word, word of truth. The word of God is the only truth on planet earth. There isn't any other truth. A guy told me one time that was a highly educated uh, professor. He said, you know what? He said, I believe the Bible's truth, but I don't believe the Bible's all truth. I think there's more truth outside the Bible. Well, let me give you my take on it, my position on it, so we're clear on it. There is no other truth outside the word of God. All truth is relegated to that book. If it's not in that book, you better be careful because it's not truth. That's the only book on this planet that God ever wrote to man. He didn't need any help. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 says, speaking the truth in love. Now that's a good one. Truth in love. You see, real love is based on real truth. Now when you really love somebody, it's not based on what you want to get from them what you want them to do for you. Real love is based on real truth, and that truth is you love somebody unconditionally. I don't love you because you're good looking. I don't love you because you're influential. I love you because God loves you. I'll love you when you're not good. When you are good, I'll love you any way it goes. It doesn't matter to me because that's unconditional. And real love is based on truth. And the truth is none of us are always lovable. Philippians 2, 2 says, like-minded. There's another good one. Be like Christ in your thoughts. Have his mind. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, long-suffering. That means that you go through stuff with people for a long time. There have been people that I went through 10, 15, 20 years with struggles. Help them, trying to help them. Isaiah 63, 7 talks about loving-kindness. You see, real love will not only be based on truth, but real love will always display kindness. You can't have real love towards somebody if you're not kind to them. Well, I love you. (laughs) Real love is displaying that love through kindness. Oh, I love words like that that go together. Now, here you have dealing with our salvation, mercy, and truth. Wow. The mercy of God can only come to us through the truth of God's Word. Without a doubt, and I'm telling you, the hardest concept of God for me to try to grasp is the mercy of God. 
I know the plan of God is way outside of my reach and all the details, but I want to tell you something. It's a lot easier for me to grasp the overall concept of God's plan than it is for me to grasp the concept of God's unending mercy. The depth of his mercy to man. It's beyond my ability to grasp that concept. I mean, stay with me, man. Man, I mean, man uses his holy name as a cuss word. Man gets up and declares to the world that he's dead like Nietzsche did. Man ridicules him all day long. Man blasphemes him. Man calls him sadistic. Man claims that he never existed. Man claims that he's a phony. For 6,000 years, man has denied him, abused him, laughed at him, lied about him, ridiculed him, blasphemed him, uh, told people uh, dirty, filthy jokes about him, mocked him, rejected him in every possible way. And in his own people, in the nation of Israel, they blamed him, they abused him, they rejected him. God's people, you and me, we use him, and then we dump him. We sell him out. We take all that he has for us and give absolutely nothing back. And yet, by mercy and truth is iniquity purged. Now explain that to me. There's a lot of people out there, and I deal with them all the time. They just can't grasp the concept that they cannot lose their salvation. And and all my life, all my ministry, I've tried to help people get to that point. But I understand the way they are because I'm a lot like them. I have a tremendous doubt in my own life about my salvation. But it's just the opposite of their doubts. Their tremendous doubt is, I'm afraid God is going to take it from me for something I do. My tremendous doubt and fear is, why in the world would God want me in the first place? What do I have to offer to him? Why would he even look down and consider me? Calvinist says, well, God picked some, God didn't pick the others. Truth of the matter is, God shouldn't pick any of us. Was grace, mercy, his mercy and truth. The depth of his mercy is beyond comprehension. When I talk about the depth of God and us getting to a place in our lives where we really understand God. By the way, Ryan, you're playing softball. We need to talk afterwards. Got something for your hip. You just smoke it for about 20 minutes, you don't feel any pain at all. (laughs) When I talk about the depth of God and us getting to the place in our lives where we really have a relationship with Him, most people think I'm talking about just really learning the Bible. And that would be true to a certain extent. But it's so much more than that, my dear friend. It's the drive behind you wanting to learn the Bible. It's the depth of you and me having an understanding to some degree of the depth of God's mercy and his love for us. That's what drives you. 
That's what keeps you when the world wants to suck you in. That's when things in life want to take you off your course. That's how we so easily get off course. That's what holds you. That's what keeps you. That's what will never let anybody, anything, pull you from the arms and the love of God when you understand the depth of His mercy and truth to you. It's the depth of you and me having an understanding of the depth of God's mercy and His love for us through His truth. And the second part of that great verse says, and by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. Oh, how many times in my life after I preached a message, somebody's come up and said to me, well, you know what? I don't think you ought to yell. I don't think you ought to try. You preached on hell tonight. I don't think you ought to scare, try to scare people into heaven. I don't think you ought to get up there and rant and rave and tell people there's a burning hell and there's this and there's that. I, I just don't think that's the way to do it. How do you, how do you, that's not really the love of God. Let me tell you what a definition in the Bible of the love of God is. You know what the love of God is? It isn't your mealy mouth concept of some guy that's walking around with a handshake like a marshmallow. The love of God, the love of God is God pouring out his wrath on his son for you and me. That's the love of God. Don't you tell me that. The Bible says Noah moved with fear in preparing an ark and the saving of his household. Fear is the most healthiest motion you got. Keep you from falling off the roof. Keep you from killing yourself in a car. Keep you from doing something or taking too many pills or doing this or doing that. And the Bible says by the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. Oh, Bob Jones Sr. used to say, you better be better off to be hell scared than hell scorched. That's a great verse. But some of God's people, bless the heart, they just can't do it. They cannot depart from evil. Now, I'm not saying you, you, you live your life perfect. None of us do. But you know what I'm talking about. Some of God's people just hang on to some sin in their life and they just want to take that thing all the way with them and I'm telling you, they just don't have a depth to them. It takes a depth of understanding God's mercy, what he did for you, the mercy and truth as it goes together in your life and my life. We don't deserve one thing that we have. In any church, you'll find three kinds of people. I've seen it all my, all my ministry. You'll find those who know what's happening. You'll find those who wonder what's happening. And then you'll find those who couldn't care less what's happening. And in a good church, you want to run about 85, 10, 5. 85 know what's happening, 10, Wonder what's happening and keep that last one down as low as you can. And our relationship with God, our depth, will really come down to just one thing, really. Our understanding of His mercy and grace and His truth in our lives. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you? Do we? 
Well, I bet you almost every child of God that you're going to meet probably has that verse marked in their Bible and they don't have it memorized. Probably on your little prayer cards, most of you, if not all of you, have that verse. See, it's one thing to write it and remember it and quote it. It's something else to really believe it. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Do you understand that? You realize there was a day when, when the angels walked into the throne room and Jesus was gone? There was a day when God's son's presence from the, when, he was, when he was brought into this world filled the expanse of heaven. He basked in the fellowship of a light with his father. And there was a day when the angels walked into God's throne room and Jesus wasn't there. He had left the glone of glory, came down to this earth. He left all of the riches, came down to be poor, that you and I might become rich through his poverty. And we just take that and don't even say thank you. We just take that and don't even look back. We take that and then complain about when we don't get what we want the way we want it. We take that and then we get mad at God because it didn't work out the way we thought it should. Our lives are such a tender balance. And to keep us on track in that balance, I personally always find I need to be overbalanced. I didn't say out of balance. I found it in my life it's a good thing when I'm overbalanced. Overbalanced in the sense of what he did for me, the price that he paid, the love that he displayed, his unending mercy, his grace to me will always, hopefully in my life, outweigh the things of this world. And as the old song says in your hymnal there, I think it's on page 204, that great song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Look at verse 7. Boy, here's another good verse. Now this is a great practical verse. And I want you to learn some things about this verse today. My goal is for you to be able to see something and to recognize when it's the real deal and when it's not. He says in verse 7, When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now this verse in English literature would be called a, an enzymatic verse. An enzymatic verse, that's a $25 word that simply means that it's a, it's a verse or a statement that's hard to interpret or mystifying in what it means. It doesn't necessarily mean exactly what you're reading it to be. For in truth, the verse, as you would say there, when a man's ways please the Lord, it maketh his enemies to be at peace with him. Oh, I could see Joel Osteen having a great time with that one. But in truth, <clears throat> when you think about it, it's not so the way you want to take it. Stephen's steps in Acts chapter 7, they definitely pleased the Lord. Didn't help him with his enemies. They took him out and stoned him. The apostle Paul's steps certainly pleased the Lord all of his life. 
but it wasn't true in his case either. They were after him, hounded him, beat him up several times, and finally in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, the last thing he ever writes, he's in a Roman prison, going about to get his head cut off. Now the answer to this is something you need to understand in the phrase of an old English phrase, to be at peace. It doesn't mean your enemies will make friends with you or even make peace with you. That's not what the verse is saying. It is saying that when you walk in the book and you have the Word of God in your life and you understand God and what He's doing in your life and your life is based on that book, it will make and cause your enemies to hold their peace. There'll be nothing they can say to you. They'll have to be at peace with you. And the reason for that is there is no argument to sound Bible doctrine. There is no answer to it. Somebody may argue with you and keep something going if you allow it, but there'll never be a legitimate answer to Bible truth. And the quicker you learn that and the faster you understand that, the better off you'll be in dealing with people because you'll realize that when you have the truth and the book is what it claims to be, nobody can stand up to you when it comes to that book. That's why when you deal with people, In any situation, I've told you people in the people ministry this. I've talked about it on Thursday night. When you start to work with people or deal with people or get into a conversation with people, one, you always based on whatever you give them on the principles found in the Word of God. There's no room for your homespun theology. There's no room for grandma's recipe for chocolate chip spiritual cookies. Now, this is a great answer to why people will never deal with you face to face. It's an incredible verse. There's times in your life, especially if you ever get into ministry, but some of you experience it already. There'll be times in your life where people will talk about you behind your back. They'll never come to you face to face. And the reason why they won't is because they don't have a leg to stand on when it comes to facing the issues that they're involved in. I'll give you a couple examples. All my life, I've, I've seen these principles in action, uh, the, uh, this verse in action, all the time. All my ministry, you know, and you know, you get guys who come up in the ministry and f- 98% of them, guys and gals, but 98% of them, they're just right on target with what they need to do. Maybe they never set the world on fire, but they understand the concept. But you're always in the ministry. Every church has them. I've seen it all my life. And when I, Everybody gets to the point where you have people that come in in your ministry who they get an idea that they can live outside the principles of the Word of God, but they don't apply to them. They make a foolish mistake. They think they're an exception to the rules that God laid down. I, you know, in my ministry, I've seen young guys that want to go out and start a church. And I was talking to somebody this week, I forget who it was, and I was saying, you know what, boy, I'll tell you, I get calls and emails and phone calls, and there's probably over 150-some guys that in my life God's been good to me and allowed me to establish and put into the ministry. And any pastor does it. I don't care how good your church is. Nobody's going to bat a thousand. You're going, to have, you're going to have guys who do a great job and do a great, and you're going to have some who don't. It's just the way that it is. 
But for you and for me as God's people, you need to always be able to understand when God is in something and when he's not. Now, I want to tell you something. Starting a church is an honorable thing. It really is. Paul was the first man who we have a recorded that starts Gentile churches. There were already some churches in, in play, Antioch, but we, we don't know who started that. So our record picks up with Paul, and he was the apostle to the Gentiles, and his whole job was starting Gentile churches. This church right here, if we would trace our lineage back, I tell you this all the time, with what we believe, where we stand, based on the biblical principles, we run ourselves right back to Antioch in Acts chapter 12 and 13. No question about it. And it's an honorable thing, but I want to tell you something. Building a church is the hardest thing you'll ever do. There's a lot of guys that want to get into the ministry and start a church because they think they don't have to work. They'll see a pastor on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night or whatever he does, you know, here and there, and they'll think, man, that's the job I need to have. They go to work eight hours and come home and put in a hard day's work, and they say, man, I'd like to have a job like the preacher's got. You wouldn't want it for long. Building a church is the single hardest thing I think that there is ever to do. Somebody says, well, you know, being a president is the hardest. Being a president is a piece of cake. You just push the button and nuke everybody. <laughs> you can't do that as a pastor. Though I am looking for the button sometimes. <laughs> Young guys have no idea what it takes. No idea what you face. And when it comes to starting a church, the principles are very clear in the Bible, how it needs to be done. The Bible is very clear on it, and, and, you know, and this church was started exactly the way it says in the Bible. Now, watch how this works here. I want to I make a point here. I don't, I'm, not, I'm just trying to show you how you see the difference based on the principle. This is a great example. First of all, all churches are started by other New Testament local churches. There's never a church in the New Testament that wasn't started by another New Testament local church. There just isn't any. Second thing is, when you want to start a church, you don't go out. You get sent out. The third thing, and this is the killer, you don't decide that you've been called. You don't decide that you've been called to start a church. When you go to Acts chapter 13, you'll find that when Paul and Barnabas and Silas were ready to go out, it wasn't Paul who said, well, I'm Paul. He, you know what he did? Here's the guy who was the apostle to the Gentiles who started every New Testament church and is responsible for everyone today. And when God gave him his mandate and said, you're going to be unlike any other man on this planet. You got the revelation about the church from me to you. You didn't get it in a book. You didn't get it from anybody else. I gave it to you, and you are my man. You know what he did? He went and got into a New Testament local church at Antioch, and even though he had a mandate from God of who he was and what God was going to do, he knew God had a plan. So the greatest Christian that ever lived who built all the churches submitted himself to a New Testament local church. And he didn't go in and say, hi, guys, I'm Paul. Just got off the mountain with God. And I'm going to start all the churches. Just wanted you to know. 
I'll be here for a couple of weeks till my big bus gets painted. <laughs> then I'll be on my way. No, you know what he did? After he got the revelation from God, so you and I would never screw it up, you know what he did? He went into that church in Antioch and waited till God spoke to the leadership of that church and said, separate me, Paul and Barnabas. Now, that might not fit into somebody's personal agenda, but in the Bible, that's how it's done. You don't call yourself into the ministry. How dangerously stupid is that? God calls you through the leadership of the New Testament local church you're serving in. When I went into ministry in 1976, I was working for my brother-in-law at a, at a grocery store as a produce manager. I had no idea. I told God, I'll go do whatever you want to do. Mel Sabaka had left. I was left in Canton there in that church, and I was doing exactly what I was supposed to do. And one night, I got a phone call from my pastor and said, we think you're ready to go, and somebody is called and they're interested, and we want to send you out. I'm not talking about something that I just tell you to do that I don't do myself. When you do it your way, you may be the nicest guy on the planet, but you know what? You're never going to know for sure if it was you or God who did it. And when it goes through the tough times and it goes through the bad times and you go through the struggling times, the devil is going to have a heyday with you because you don't know for sure deep down inside if God did it or you did it. No matter how we try to justify it. You forsake the mother church. That should be your support system. You have no pastor. I don't know what I'd have done my first five years in the ministry and on beyond that. If I would, Mel's phone bell must have been $1,000 a month. I called him all the time. Man, I'm up against this. Now what do I do here? What am I going to do now? Where do I go now? What do, how do I handle this? Can you imagine going into a scenario where you cut yourself off from the very support system God gave you? Now that's either blatant stupidity or blatant arrogancy. I never would have made it. That Bible says in Psalms 127 verse 1, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Right. I was talking to Bubba when he was over there to remodel in our bathroom. We're going to have an open house here. I'll come use the bathroom when it's done. Everybody <laughs> else is having one. <clears throat> And we were talking about some things, and I said, you know what? I said, I was doing something the other day, and it just hit me. <clears throat> if you're a builder, and you're building a house, and you want to cheat the guy you're building for, you're going to save money that you can make by buying substandard material. And you're going to pocket the money 
You're going to cheat the guy whose house it is, but he's going to wind up with a lot of substandard material. And you know it's the same thing when you start to build God's house and you don't do it God's way? You know what you wind up getting? A bunch of substandard material. And the house of God is now built on substandard material that can't get the job done. God has a way he does things. I don't always like the way he does them, but it's the way he does it. I mean, come on. You can't use the Bible to not drink and preach on, you shouldn't drink. You can't use the Bible getting up and saying, well, you know what? You shouldn't carouse around and fornicate and smoke dope and all that stuff. You can't use the Bible and get up and say from the pulpit, you know, you shouldn't hang out with the world, be ye separate, and you shouldn't go, uh, you know, you got to have some great convictions, and oh, I don't go, I don't go eat where they do this or they do that, because I've got standards. And then when it comes to starting a church, you just throw out the principles that you don't like because they don't fit what you want to do. Now here's my point. Verse 7. So they all run as fast as they can from any real church and play and pretend they're okay. God called me. God put it in my heart. The two greatest words that says, I'm really screwed up and I don't know what I'm doing. No, he didn't. You did it. There's only one way God does it. That's by the book. Hey, listen, if those guys, whoever they may be all down through my ministry, came in on a Thursday night and tried to defend their actions, they'd be blown out of the water so fast because of the Bible uh, makes them be at peace. Nothing to say. You can get up and say whatever you want to say, and then when we come right back to the Bible, the Bible says this is the way it's done. End of story. Makes you be at peace. Hold your peace. Nothing to say. And dealing with people involved in cults. Here's another one. You never deal with them on their issues. You always deal with them on the Bible issues. Most of you don't know this, but because a false religion or a cult is phony and not based on the Bible, just like the guy who goes out and tries to start a church outside the structures of the New Testament... You always got these loose ends hanging out someplace. And every cult and false religion will have an undefendable position. They'll have an undefendable position because they're not basically based on the Bible. And when you're not based on the Bible, no matter what you do, there will be places in your life based on the Bible. You are undefendable and you cannot defend your position. Find out what that is and they're at peace with you. You make them. You make them, because they have no answer to you. Oh, they may try to argue up one side and down the other, but there's no legitimate answer. You make them be at peace, and they have to hold their peace. And that's because what the Bible has is truth. Hey, I can take you to the Bible, and by example, and by principles, and by model, I can defend everything we believe in this church and everything that you stand for and we stand for. And I'm telling you right now, I don't have to add a thing, subtract a thing, or change a thing to make it fit. 
Thursday night Bible study is an open forum. Any question you want to ask about the Bible, I do it for two reasons. One for you. So you might be able to ask any question you want to ask to learn the Bible. The second reason I do it is for me. No man who is crooked, no man who has an ulterior motive, you'll never find a wishy-washy Baptist or a cult leader open up a Bible study to anybody can ask them questions. They're not going to put themselves in a position where you can ask them something in front of everybody that they can't defend. They're not going to do it. You kidding me? They're never going to allow themselves to be asked by people. Why do you believe this? Why do you do it this way? Why do you do it that way? It only takes one Bible believer in the crowd to ruin their night. <clears throat> hey, man, you can ask me whatever you want. I'm not afraid of anything because it's all based on the book. We got in our bookstore back there a book called uh, The Answer Book by Sam Gibb. I've known Sam Gibb. We were in Canton together, in Mel's group together. Sam was one of the early graduates from Pensacola in, uh, Ruckman School back in the, back in the late, uh, uh, late 60s, early 70s. And I've known Sam for years. And Sam uh, wrote a number of books, but one of the books we have in our bookstock back there is that little blue book called The Answer Book. That book deals with 62, I think 62, 62 the accusations about the King James Bible. And old Sam takes every one of those accusations, lays it out, states what it is, and then takes through through the Bible and shows you why the Bible is right and why they're wrong. 62. It is number one on my hit parade for anybody who wants to get into that issue. It's called the answer book. It should be called the shut your mouth book. Because <laughs> when he's done with the issues, there is nothing to say. He makes his enemies be at peace with him. There's nothing they can say to come against that. It's right in the middle of the rack there if you want to get one first. Oh, you're going to the bathroom. <laughs> I, excuse me, I thought you couldn't wait to get one. No, she's getting a cupcake. That's what she's getting. One of the things I always enjoyed about Dr. Ruckman, <clears throat> he took cheap shots behind his back all of his life. The people hated him. On the website, there was 89 pages the last time I looked of anti-stuff against him. You know, the great keyboard cowards. Most people don't know this. For almost 40, 50 years, Dr. Ruckman had a standing offer that anybody that wanted to debate him on anything that he believed, he would pay their plane fare to Pensacola, put them up in a hotel, buy their food, and have a public forum where they could tackle him on anything that he wanted. You know, in 40 to 50 years, I think, and John may correct me on this, John Busquet, I think there was only four or five guys who ever took him up on it. You listen to those four or five debates, you'll understand why nobody else ever did. Amen. Fifteen minutes into it, it was over. There was nothing to say. 
I watched him put away an evolutionist one time. I timed it, 42 seconds. It was over. And though it went on for another hour and a half, it was over. All that guy did was backpedal. He couldn't get anything going because he was destroyed. You know why he was destroyed? Because he went up against a book that is absolute, that when you believe it, you follow its principles. Nobody's got one thing to say about it. It's over. It's over. Now, these two verses show you the importance of an in-depth relationship with God. And again, I use those two examples, almost extremes of each other. But I want you to see there is a process by which you can look at any circumstance and ask yourself, is it real or is it not? We have a lot of people when they go into the churches, other churches, the first thing they ask is what Bible they use. That's a start, see? You're going to make your decision based on a very good question. That's good. Don't stop there. Look at everything a person does, especially if you're going to be part of it. Do you want to lend yourself to something, no matter what it may be, that is not going to be done the way God wants it to be done, no matter what it may be? Now, these two verses show you the importance of an in-depth relationship with God. And when it comes to real Christianity, you have to have a depth to you. When you have a goal all of your life to, to understand and to dig deeper every day, to understand God and for yourself personally and His mercy through His truth, you remember, you can't separate the two. They go together, and it will take you to a level of a relationship of God with God that will open up all things to you, and when you take responsibility for them. My job here is to build leadership. I look for every, every man, every woman that comes into this church. If there's even what I suspect is a speck of leadership, I want to cultivate it. I look at you young kids, and, I, and, and girls and guys, and already I see tremendous potential down the line for leadership. Leadership is what makes Christianity work. Leadership is what makes Christianity fire on all eight cylinders. But I want to tell you something. Real leadership is not about ability. It never has been and it never will be. We make that fatal mistake. Real leadership is not about ability. Real leadership is about you taking responsibility and having to make the hard judgment calls in life when you have to make them. Realizing that real leaders have to separate themselves to a certain degree because there may be times when you have to separate from a circumstance or a situation because of the fact that you know it's not going the way God wants it to go. That's leadership. And you don't find a lot of people with that kind of ability in the sense of responsibility. And you, the two go together. And you learn that everything in your life needs to be solid on biblical principles. This is why I, 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 I harp at you, I preach to you, I give them to you all the time. I make you on a little three-by-five card. Everything we do has to go back to a biblical reason why we do it. Are we doing it biblically, or are we doing it the way we want to do it? Last week I told you that the devil will, 
walk in one side of the door and Christ in the other side, and they came up here. We talked about it Thursday night. I, I made the reference last week and Thursday. You couldn't even tell them apart. But I'll tell you how you would tell them apart. You tell them apart by what comes out of their mouth. The devil, he'd claim to love God. He'd claim to love his word. He'd go to church. He'd probably even start some. But when he speaks, he'd be changing any principles and sidestep it to do what he wants to do. In Jesus' name. The Lord, on the other hand, it's real simple. He never violates his own principles. He stays with them, and they're absolute. Now, that very thing right there will all be the key to telling you that looking anything, is it real? Is God in it or is God not in it? Don't look at the person. Don't look at how nice they are. Don't look at this. Don't look at the friendship. Don't look at any of that stuff. Go back to the principles. Is it based on what the principle says or is it not? I don't change the principle to do what I want to do or believe what I want to believe. I'll change my attitude of heart and what I believe to bring it in line with what the principles say. The ability to justify or, lie, or violate God's principles of the Bible in anything we do. People do it all the time. And when you stay with the book as the absolute accountability in our lives, then your enemies, hey, they may hate you, they may reject you, they may lie about you and talk about you, they may plan against you, but they'll never face you because they're at peace with you. Your stand on truth has made them hold their peace face to face, and they'll never come to a confrontation anywhere where there's any open Bibles. They have to hold their peace because in front of a crowd of open Bibles, there's absolutely nothing to be said to justify what they believe or what they've done. Now, these two verses here, which are great verses, go right back to verse 1. The preparation of the heart of man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. God never, and I say never, violates his own principles. And you and I will never be an exception to that rule. Even though many times we foolishly sometimes try to convince ourselves that we are. Bible says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain to build it. There's four houses in the Bible. Four houses in the Bible. There's a house in Israel. God had a plan for Israel to build them. They wanted to build it their own way. We all know what happened to them. Your own home physically. When you are the spiritual leaders of your home, your children, the home grows up being strong with the Lord. When it's not, it's not. That home will be built on the principles. Your body is the temple of God. It's God's house. You build it the right way. What? No, you're not. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Was it in you which you have of God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. You build it the right way. You build a strong house for God spiritually. They have to be built on the principles. There's no way around it. God designed them. God gave the principles to go along with it. And that's what we've got to do. And the fourth one is... God's church. And except the Lord build a house, then we're all labor in vain to build something that God's not building. And I'm going to tell you again, in all four houses, God builds it by the principles. He doesn't just give you some general outlines as suggestions. He gives you some hardline principles that work. Do it that way, He builds it. Do it any other way, you're building it.
Folks, I love you to death, and I'd do anything in the world for you, but listen to me. Don't ever want something so bad that you convince yourself that God is in it when He's really not. That's the best advice I could give you. Don't ever get to the place in your life that you want something so bad that you actually delude yourself that you are the exception to the rule. That God's got rules for everybody else in what they do, but because it's you, He's going to lift you out of that and make you special. That's not going to happen. One of the greatest lessons I ever learned that in everything God does in the Bible, there will be an exact pattern to it. You just learn the patterns. The only way you know something is of God is if you follow the pattern. This is one of the greatest things you'll ever learn. Now that's good advice from a long time ago when Christians and preachers still followed and believed the Bible. It may be out of touch with your plans and modern day Christianity, but it's never not been part of God's plan. And as a young man or a woman in this life, I got some great advice for you found in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5 that God gave to one of the greatest men that ever lived when he was going to do a work for God. God said to Moses in Hebrews 8, 5, She saith he that they'll make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. God has a pattern for everything you want to do no matter what it is in life. That book has, ha, has and holds the pattern for everything. For starting a church, there's a pattern. For taking a new job, there's a pattern. For finding a spouse, there's a pattern. For training up your children, there's a pattern. For dealing with people, there's a pattern. For dealing with your troubles and your heartaches and your depression, there's a pattern. For dealing with the cults, there's a pattern. For dealing with your family, there's a pattern. For you to help with your kids and, uh, and, uh, and your husband and your wife, there's a pattern. Training up leaders, there's a pattern. Winning people to Christ, there's a pattern. How to study your Bible, there's a pattern. How to rightly divide the word of truth, there's a pattern. Christian life is no more complicated than this. Learn the patterns, and in everything you do, follow the pattern. Now, how hard is that? And we make Christianity so hard. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because every one of us have a tendency to think that we are an exception to the rule. We think because of who we are, our situation is different. Well, when I do this, I don't have to do that because God put it in my heart. No, He didn't. He will never, never put it in your heart outside the principles. That's a delusion that you have Convinced yourself because deep down inside, you want to do what you want to do. God never violates his own principles. The depth of God is nothing more than understanding the pattern of God. And that will always come back to understanding the depth of his mercy and his truth. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we thank you for these two great verses. Boy, Lord, they, they are loaded. And help these people in everything in life. 
Everything in life. Lord, there's so many examples we could have looked at today. Help them to understand, first of all, the depth of your love and mercy and your truth. Help us to grasp it, Father, as hard as that is. Help us just to see a glimpse of it, a glimmer of it. Just enough to show us that everything in this world that glitters is certainly not gold. Help us to see where the real gold is versus the fool's gold of the world. And Father, I ask you, Lord, to help these kids. Help them to grow up. Lord, you've got a plan for them. You want something for them to do. And the devil wants to stop them dead in their tracks. And he'll do it. He'll do it by getting them to follow their own heart and their own conscience instead of following the patterns of the Word of God. Lord, there's been many a good man, many a good woman who wound up on the ash heap simply because they started out doing it their way and foolishly convinced themselves that they were the exception to the patterns found in the Bible. Now, Lord, we love you. I love these people. And Lord, bless us today as we go out and do the work for you. Thank you, Father, for this church and for its stand and for the men and the women who are leaders, who can make the hard choices, who every day of their life they'll stand up and say, you know what? This is what the Bible says. This is the way it's going to be done. That's the key. Help us, Father. We love you. And thank you for all you've given us. Bless us now the rest of this day, throughout this week. Pray for the ones that are on, the, on the hospital list and the list, Father, for those that are hurting. We pray your blessings upon it all. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.